1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly.
2: And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: On today's show, we interview powerhouse comics creator Gilbert Hernandez. Then PW Select editor Adam Boritz gives us some hot tips for indie authors.
2: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan.
1: So in fiction, there's... Really, it, it's an interesting logjam up at the top. Um, the books one, two, three, and four on the hardcover mm-hmm. fiction list are last week's one, two, four, and three. Uh, we we have a quartet of, of gorillas who are all jostling for <laughs> for the top spot here. James Patterson, uh-huh. John Grisham, Stephen King, David Baldacci. Uh, yeah, on any bestseller list, one of them would be at the top. Uh, right. And uh, it's interesting to see what happens when all four of them have big new books out at once. So Patterson is uh, certainly holding his own at the top of the list with Hope to Die, Um, has sold 55,000 copies this week, almost 56,000. Just below that is John Grisham's Grey Mountain and Stephen King's Revival and uh, David Baldacci's The Escape, which are really neck and neck. The King has sold about 38,000, the Baldacci about 37,000. So This is the time of year when these big titles come out, hit the shelves, uh, just in time for gift buying season. Yeah,
2: sure, sure. And uh, Patterson was one of our publishing people of the year Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, this week's issue, uh, basically based on the money that he's donating to libraries and, and elsewhere to promote reading. So uh, yeah,
1: now we so know he's where he's the, getting it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he, exactly. He just, he's just he's, he's uh, giving
2: it back, which is great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But it's really interesting. Um, to, I mean, I think of, of King and Grisham, you know, these were people who were big names even 25 years right. ago. Um, and then you have Patterson and Baldacci, who are slightly newer. Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly they've been around for a while yeah. now, but um, still uh, maybe the next generation almost. And so you, you know, it's it's uh, it's fascinating to see how they're pitted against each other and of course they all appeal yeah. to many of the same readers
2: right exactly exactly sure
1: sure so uh yeah. so those those readers are currently uh you know, pulling out their pockets looking for pennies in the lining yeah <laughs> right right for four big expensive hardcovers on the, on the order of 30 dollars each
2: yeah right yeah
1: so um, the first uh, new book that we have on the list, uh, and obviously we've been gone for a couple of weeks, so <laughs> right, right. Um, these, are, these are all a little bit new, uh, but uh, Tom Clancy, Full Force and Effect uh, is on the list at number five. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the 10th the Jack Ryan book, uh, which are now being written by Mark Greeney uh, to mm-hmm. continue the series created right. by the late Tom Clancy. Uh, and so President Jack Ryan uh, is dealing with an international stalemate with North Korea and uh you know he's he's it, it it's i don't know if it's explicitly in the text mm. um the the same situation in in North Korea that uh, is happening in our world but if not it's a it's a very uh thin disguise right. on on reality and uh So it it sounds like there's some sort of assassination plot going on uh, in, in Greeny's book. So very, very timely. And that's at number five on the hardcover fiction list. And then we have to go all the way down to number 30. To see, uh, and there's actually a tie for number thirty. Um, one is Richard Flanagan's book, which has been out for a couple months now. And the other is uh, just out this week. It's the Marvel Encyclopedia uh, coming out from DK Publishing, and uh, this is the updated, expanded edition, timed with Marvel's 75th anniversary. So that's uh, going to be probably a big hit with movie fans yeah. now, as well as comic uh, right, fans. Right. Sure. Yeah. And uh, it's created in full collaboration with Marvel Comics. So there's lots of insider information. This is not a sort of unauthorized biography or anything like that. Uh, So uh, that's uh, almost over 400 pages of of marvelous Marvelness. And I just wanted to note a couple other things way down the list. Um, When you scroll down, there's a couple of books I was surprised to see. Um, One was The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell. It came out in September. And, uh, it's very interesting to see it suddenly sneaking onto the list at, uh, at number 41, mm-hmm. um, is there last week too. And my guess is that it's because, uh, all the best books of the year lists are starting to come out. out. Right. Um, so for example, the guardian just put the bone clocks on its year's best oh, list. Wow. Right. So this is uh, an interesting note of how much those lists can drive sales sure. and, uh, it's, uh, yeah, just a uh, nice to know that somebody actually reads. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, this is <laughs> as, true. as people who make those lists ourselves, Like right, so It's right. always good to know that, that uh, someone out there is willing to take our right. advice. So uh, that's what's going on on the fiction list: a, a whole lot of nothing.
2: Well. On nonfiction, we've got a mix of, well, diet books, but also quite a bit of cookbooks. The uh, highest debut is number nine. Uh, Pretty much everything has been the same for the last couple of weeks, uh, mostly one through five. Uh, But this one is The Bulletproof Diet. Lose up to a pound a day, reclaim energy and focus, upgrade your life. This is by Dave uh, Asprey, who was a Silicon Valley, he's a multimillionaire uh, from Silicon Valley. He weighed 300 pounds. Um, and he here recommends, uh, eating 1800 calories a day and working out 90 minutes a day, six days a week. So it's quite a bit here, but, um... Uh, this book was has uh, got a forward by J.J. Virgin, who herself is a big uh, diet, fitness, and health uh, guru with her own line of um, uh, uh, various products. But uh, so anyway, so that's at number nine. Uh, we have to go all the way down to twenty-four for our next debut, and here we start a whole slew of. Cookbooks, And uh, this is the annual Southern Living Annual Recipes for 2014 uh, from uh, editors of Southern Living Magazine. So this mm-hmm. is at number 24. Um, I, I imagine this is probably a gift book uh, or also a book to help prepare one uh, one might use for the holidays. Right. Uh, the other one, um, I'm not going to go in chronological order, but thematic is... Uh, uh, down at number forty-four, Cook's Illustrated Meat Book. This one just came out. We Ooh. gave this a star uh, in our. Um, I might have to magazine. get a copy
1: from you. Oh
2: yeah, sure. If, if you, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Around. I'm a big it's Cook's a Illustrated
1: one. fan. Oh great.
2: Well, this is meat, and I imagine for the holidays, it's going to be. There's going to be. It looks like there's a kind of a a nice uh, loin on the uh, on the cover there. So we've got uh, fifty recipe packed books. Uh, um, I'm sorry, we've got... Uh, this is one of their 50 recipe pack books. Uh, this one has everything from uh, juicy tidbits to be found in the margins, as well as tips on how to clean a spice grinder. Uh, they say use raw wet uh, white rice. How to tie mm. two pork tenderloins together in order to grill them evenly. And even yeah. the best ketchup. They say go for Heinz Organic. So Yeah, it's,
1: uh, it is, in fact, the best. It
2: really is, yeah. So... Um, this one really, it's it's a we, like I said, we gave it a start, um, and it's pretty detailed. It's a great reference, and I think um, it's a good solid book. At number thirty five, this was actually one of our best cookbooks of the year, Mexico, the cookbook by Margarita Carillo Arante. Uh, she's the owner of uh, Turtux Mexi- uh, restaurant in Mexico City, um, and this is really. Um, by many uh uh opinions the, the definitive book on mexican cuisine um uh, it's it's kind of like the silver palette of mexico and, wow. and it's just a fantastic book uh, is it
1: is it big i think of silver palette is yeah a big it's hefty it,
2: book. yeah exactly it's a big book uh published by uh fiden uh which produces beautifully illustrated nicely uh done books so mm-hmm. that's at number 35 now, the, I think down at number thirty-six, just a departure from our food, um, our food books and diet books is the Beatles lyrics: the stories behind the music, including the handwritten drafts of more than a hundred classic Beatles songs by Hunter Davies, and this one is. Um, This is, they say this is for the 50th anniversary of the Beatles coming to America, but this one, um, really gets behind, it shows the songs in the handwritten form and tells the story behind them as much as they can. And this one I imagine is just going to be a great baby boomer gift.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I, I saw that and I'm like, oh, I know people who'd want that. Who would love that. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) Exactly. So, um, and that's what we have on our nonfiction list and we've got, um, we're going to be on next week, mm-hmm. and uh, then the holidays, and we'll see what happens after that.
1: Yeah, well, and after that, it's a brand new year, and next week is going to be episode number one hundred. Wow! If you, if you can believe it, we've been doing this for two years now. So it's amazing. It's pretty exciting. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Yeah,
2: me too. Me too.
1: I'm Rose Fox,
2: and I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, Gilbert Hernandez describes his unique blend of punk and graphic storytelling. We'll be right back.
0: Hi, I'm Scott Ian, author of I'm the Man, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
2: Today, we've got comics creator Gilbert Hernandez on the line. He's got two new books out, Bumperheads and Lover Boys. Hi, Gilbert. So glad you could join us.
0: Oh, I'm glad to be here. Hello, everybody.
2: So these two books are very different. Let's talk about Bumperheads first. Can you describe it briefly for our listeners?
0: Well, Bumperhead was uh, difficult to, to do, actually. It's basically, uh, the story mostly takes place during the uh, 1970s uh, from, with a teenage boy you know, experiencing being an outsider. Um, it's called Bumperhead because when he was growing up, uh, he has a large forehead, and kids made fun of him. but uh, he, so he sort of becomes very alienated as a teenager uh, partially because of that um, but mostly because he's simply an outsider. he likes uh, dif- uh, different kinds of rock music that you know his peers like he uh, he just doesn't seem to connect he's he does okay with the ladies, but uh, that falls apart just because he doesn't really know how to relate to them so uh, it's kind of a downer for some people, but uh, some people just like the uh the details of what' it like to be sixteen in nineteen
2: seventy two so in, his name is Bobby, and yeah. uh he's he's kind of seems to be part of this disaffected youth as you say in the nineteen seventies music scene and uh I know uh you were involved in in the uh or at least you know uh, uh, a fan of the uh, punk music scene of the same era uh maybe a little bit later is is any of this autobiographical or were there autobiographical elements or parts of your life that inspired the book
0: um actually all of the above okay. <laughs> you know it's uh yeah it's 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 very much taken from uh pretty much just how i felt as a you know as a teenager and um and yeah some of the, some of the scenes in it and some of the characters in it are are actual people i i just changed you know names here and there um but a couple of uh, things in there are actually a lot of things in there are pretty close to what you know what happened to me and what it would like for me to grow up in the 1970s. Um, you know, I, I used real band names, but um, uh, you know, I don't know. It just uh, it, it's it's hard, hard to, to explain because I do all my work that way. I, I usually take things from real life and then just change them around enough to fit uh, you know a storyline
2: so bobby seems to go through life kind of not really being affected by much though he affects others uh, it seems so uh, tell us a little bit more about bobby
0: well bobby basically has his guard up all the time he uh he's just uh i guess because of you know his you know the, being teased as a kid he he has a, he has a wall up so whenever good things come to him he takes them in stride Um, when bad things happen to him, he takes those in stride. He never, he never really commits to what, uh, you know, what, what might be good for him, uh, or, you know, uh, simply, like he, he has no problem talking to girls and uh, having girlfriends, but he sort of takes it for granted as it's something that's almost not real to him. Mm -hmm. So, um... I mean that 's not like me <laughs> I, I, I was very happy to have a girlfriend in high school. let me tell you um, but, but um, um i don 't know he's just sort of he he 's sort of that type of person that keeps everything at an arm 's length just because he won 't have to actually deal with uh, you know heavy feelings here and there, and then once he 's alone and you know thinking is Lonely, depressing thoughts. He, you know, that's that's when it hits him hard. So, but in his waking life, uh, he he keeps things at an arm's distance.
1: So, what's it like looking back on this era, which was obviously pretty formative for you? And um, how does the the historical fiction that you're creating kind of reflect on the present day?
0: Hmm, that's interesting. Are you speaking specifically about Bumperhead?
1: Uh, or you can go further beyond that. However, you like
0: um I, boy i it's difficult for me to gauge um I simply do stories uh the way I do them because that's the only way I know how to do them um I don't know how to keep up with uh, uh modern trends or or i mean i I have to remind myself uh when when a character's on the phone that it's a cell phone
3: mm-hmm.
0: and it's not a flip phone <laughs> you know, i have to <laughs> remind myself little things like that' Because that's the only stuff i don't i, I just ignore. present time. Uh, I have to remind everybody uh, or or remind my readers or myself that, um, you know, people use computers. People are always on iPads or, you know, their cell phones or whatever. So I kind of incorporated that into Bumperhead in particular um, as sort of a a science fiction element (laughs) almost. Sure. I mean, from
1: from Bobby's perspective, we're here in the future.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, um, but as far as how my work reflects uh, the modern, you know, the modern world or modern comics, I'm I'm not really sure. I pretty I think I'm just very old school, and I think um, I'm still be able to you know put out comics that people read because um, I'm just pretty much uh, things are pretty simple for me. Uh, it's just down to earth because that's the only way I know how to do it
2: so in your, so moving on to your to the other most recent book lover boys it 's it 's set in the what seems to be a Mexican border city uh, okay. and it 's about a group of young men uh, who who kind of fancy themselves as lover boys and so it 's a very different Different kind of book, it seems. Uh, And also, the illustrations, the way you've illustrated, are both very different. I mean, uh, completely different narrative, theme, and uh, illustrations. Um, Can you talk about that?
0: Um, Well, Lover Boys was just uh, almost like uh, a breath of fresh air or a break after Bumperhead. Mm -hmm. Because when you do something like Bumperhead and it's about, you know, teen angst and that sort of thing. Uh, you, you have to kind of feel it to make it real. I mean, uh, I had to go back and think of difficult things that happened, you know, back in the '70s when I was a teenager. Um, and I had, and this is what I do with all my work: when I have to go back and do a younger person who's, you know, pretty, pretty unhappy, I have to go through those feelings as well to 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 to, to, to figure out, you know, what what I want to say on the page. So, uh, when something like that is done, uh, I, went, I went with Lover Boys to go a little. Uh, originally, it was actually a little lighter. It was supposed to be a light romance. Uh, it just turns out to be just as grim as everything else.
1: <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't get away from it. <laughs> yeah,
0: but it was just a different style, just to make it more of a, uh, one of my classic styles of telling stories. Just a simple story, you know, a simple neighborhood, uh, but with a surreal element uh, thread. Uh, running through it so,
2: so tell us about that neighborhood and tell us who these these boys are the names what they do Um,
0: uh, in, in Lover Boys
2: yeah yeah and how exactly are they Lover Boys
0: well uh I, I just like the title and I applied it to guys that aren't Lover Boys they're a bunch of clueless guys that fancy themselves at or uh the main character Rocky he, he is a Lover Boy he just happens to show up and women like him you know he's just those types of people and uh that type of a person, but um, I just did it. Uh, like I said, um, sort of. I start out with a lot of those types of stories, and I, this goes back to my Palomar uh, work in Love and Rockets, where I basically start out uh, coming up with an idea of, a, of first, of all, it's a place, you know, where to set the characters, and it's usually. And I discovered this recently; I wasn't even aware of this. That it comes from basically my neighborhood growing up. Mm-hmm. and I build from there I transmogrified I changed this I, I changed you know the characters around this and that but it usually starts from my point of view as a, as a young person living on the street in Oxnard, California <laughs> and uh, and then I build it from there it just moves from there and that's that's become a pattern for me but it works for me because sometimes the stories I just I started out that way and then that element is I drop completely and go with other things that I came up with later
1: so uh, I confess that when somebody tells me that there's a, a book about a bunch of young men who call themselves lover boys, I assume that there's some kind of homoerotic, at least subtext, if not text. Uh, was was that intentional?
0: Uh, no, I did. I actually I didn't even think of that. I just you know, <laughs> the old uh, old school. Like I said, I think I, you know my head's still in the 1960s. You know, so I think you know when you say lover boy as a kid, you know, you think of oh a guy that you know thinks he's 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 got away with the women mm-hmm. you know now things it's true this is interesting that you mentioned that is because uh, now it's different now when you certain words mean a different thing now uh lover boys you know, mm-hmm. immediately it's right. probably about you know gay, gay guys <laughs> you know uh, and it's something i never uh it's it's interesting how things are, are simply different now because okay here's an example this is this has nothing to do with lover boys but it's a little bit about what. What we're talking about is I notice now when uh, young people look at somebody, a classic uh, movie star like, say, Marilyn Monroe, I often hear them say she looks like a transvestite. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting change because when I was growing up, she just embodied this, uh, you know, uh, uh, this very feminine, woman, mm-hmm. ex- extra feminine, you know, and a lot of movie stars were like that, and they grew up thinking that's. That's what that is. And now, with things that have changed so much that women really don't reflect that kind of image anymore, um, it's about being thin and look, looking you know, a different way, and whatever it is, you know, fashion dictates. Uh, young people grow up differently, seeing it differently. They'll look at an old uh, Hollywood movie and say, the women look like right. and uh, That was a little shocking to me. I was mm-hmm. a little surprised.
1: Yeah, that's interesting.
0: It's just how, how things have changed, and uh, it's just... A different thing now. So I guess those old movies are, are getting more and more alien to younger audiences, whereas they were the norm to me when I was growing up.
3: Sure.
1: I, on On the flip side, I, I just watched a 1957 movie um, with. Uh, uh, Tracy and Hepburn film called Desk Set. And to me, it was so much more daring and outrageous than anything I would expect Hollywood to come out. And the computer nerd is also the incredibly handsome leading man. You know, you just you just wouldn't (laughs) see that. So um, I I think stereotypes also shift over time.
0: And I guess that the thing that would only the thing that would fascinate uh, younger audiences mostly about uh, that movie is how big the damn computer is.
1: Oh, it's huge. <laughs> the, the, the whole the whole first half of the movie is him measuring the room to see if the computer will fit in it. <laughs>
0: yeah,
3: yeah, that's pretty funny.
1: <laughs> so, um, in in addition to Bumperhead and Lover Boys, you've got four other books out just this year. Uh, you've been a very prolific creator for a very long time. How do you sustain that pace without burning out?
0: Um uh, basically I I've got I s I just have that drive. I think I'm just born with that kind of drive. Um oh I do burn out. I do have to slow down here and there because, you know, doing a graphic novel too I too a especially. That that that'll just knock you out, you know. Um but, you know, I, I learned to pace myself with uh, doing shorter jobs in between and mm-hmm. uh I keep myself busy all the time. Um uh, I don't know how long it's gonna last, uh You know, I could just all of a sudden flare out one year and say, "Hey, I don't have any more graphic novels." (laughs) You know, (laughs) but right now I'm taking advantage of my uh, my what's left of my you know youthful passion.
1: Mm -hmm. And um, speaking of your youth, who who were some of your early influences? And obviously, to start with, you're from a family of artists. You really got it from day one.
0: Yeah, I got it from day one. Mom was uh, actually a comic book fan back in the 1940s, and uh, she uh, you know she apparently she was very into comic books when she was a kid so uh, you know she grew up got married had some kids and so when it was time to you know distract us (laughs) basically she allowed us to read comic books she thought they were okay you know and luckily I grew up in the in the the 60s where uh, it was the big boom of um, how modern you know the, the beginning of modern comics you know especially from Marvel comics and that sort of thing and then later the underground comics so I was at that Place where comics were evolving at this rapid and pretty exciting pace uh, at the time um,
1: what, what was that, it like being around for that i mean was was it really eye opening and inspiring for you as a as an artist and a writer
0: yeah because um besides uh, besides that i you know I, I liked movies as well, but uh, comic books uh, it was the norm then uh, you'd go to the you know the local you know uh, market and there was the new the new comic books out and they were just evolving very rapidly uh but you know when it while it's happening it's the norm you think that that's how it's gonna always be or it's always been you know the new marvel comics and then they have new artists and new writers and new stories and then you get the underground comic later on and then you get you know it just kept it just kept uh moving along and uh once i hit uh, hit the mid seventies in my teens, I noticed as things started to drop off the momentum of the original uh inspiration for those comics you know started to level off and and you know it started to change into a different thing, so I lost interest in that um in pursuing comic books um, as far as inspiration goes, I was looking more toward films and basically real life. what I was doing with my friends and partying and you know just having a you know, Teen Adventures. You know, in real life, were just was more interesting than what was in comic books. So when I came to coming, uh, came to to doing comic books later on, um, I'd already had the history of reading comic books and drawing from them, copying them, and having you know, you know trying trying to approximate a comic book. You know, growing up, um, and then I had the experience of my teenage years and you know adult years. So I just mixed the two, and that's and my brother as well in Love and Rockets, and that's that's. That's
1: why I'm here. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
2: Book lovers everywhere
4: love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
2: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Gilbert Hernandez, the author of Bumperhead and Lover Boys and a whole lot of other stuff. Um, And you just mentioned working with your brothers on Love and Rockets. What's it like making art with family?
0: (laughs) That um, that just came naturally. It was sort of uh, okay. I got these comics here, and you've got those comics there, and we'll just put them together because otherwise we'd have to do our you know separate comics, and that's more work. So <laughs> <laughs> literally, are putting them together, it was just easier and quicker to put out. Um, but um, even at a young age, we never collaborated really. I mean, we rarely collaborate now, even if at all. Um, he has his work and writes his and draws his own work, and I write and draw my own work. We just happen to have the same. Uh, Influences is, is why our work sometimes overlaps.
2: So, tell us about Love and Rockets. Uh, how did uh, how did the first one start? Um, and then, how 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 did you know there was going to be, or did you know it was going to be part of a series?
0: Oh no, we didn't. Um, we kind of, you know, as growing up as kids, reading uh you know, comic books. We 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 stumbled upon fanzines where there was fan comic book fans putting out their own fanzines and their own comic books within these fanzines, and we saw a few of those and noticed that they weren't that polished, but they were kind of fun. And sometimes they came up with you know more things that were more fun than you know that was going on in regular comics. So we kind of just was were going along that. We just created our own comics, learned how to do them properly with you know pen and ink and all that kind of stuff. Uh, learned how to letter, did did all that stuff, but it was pretty, basically simple science fiction stuff. That was just what we were into when we were younger. And when it just simply came time to uh, have somebody look at the stuff, because we thought, well, we're getting old now, so we might have people look at it. We put it together, uh, spent a little bit of money, put our first issue of Lone Rockets together, but we had no clue on how to distribute it or sell it or do anything with it. So we... uh, you know, we'd go to uh, small conventions and just show it to people, and they thought it looked okay. You know, <laughs> pretty, you know, for, for amateurs, they go, yeah, this is all right, yeah, yeah, you keep going, keep going. You know, it was very encouraging, but we still didn't know what to do with it. So we sent it to a couple comic book uh, review publications. One was the Buyer's Guide, the other one was the Comics Journal. And the Comics Journal was known for their very critical view of comic books, a uh, very uh, scrappy magazine. So we figured, well, we'll send them a copy and maybe they'll review it and people might notice it. It was just sort of a, as sort of a oh, well, you know, shoulders shrugged, And I sent a copy to the Comics Journal and uh, as time, as luck would have it, um, the publisher, Gary Groff, took a look at it and they were, they were just happened to be looking for comics to publish as well as uh, their own magazine. And he said, Do you want us to publish your comic? I said, sure. Well, that was it. It was that simple.
1: Huh. Huh. You were at the right place at the right time.
0: Yeah, and, and the right people, uh the the, the the chemistry is that they very much encouraged uh us, you know, uh going our own way. You know. They were very um adamant about not repeating what the mainstream publishers were already doing with, you know, Batman and Superman and Spider Man, that kind of thing. They wanted it to go somewhere else. We didn't know what that was, so we just went from issue to issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, fig- figuring it out, and luckily we got a you know good uh, immediate response it, and it was positive about the things you know what the readers liked about it and so we just went, we just went for it so it was really good timing i guess
2: and so how did you uh and your brother split up the work
0: um, just usually well, there was three of us in the beginning, and our older brother Mario was just a lot slower and didn 't have a uh, wasn't wasn't as prolific in, in material as, as we were. Um, so we basically split up the book, uh, I guess, you know, just, um, eventually it just became half and half, you know, mm-hmm. my brother has half, I have the other, but originally it was, uh, oh, I don't know, it was several pages of older brother Mario and then Jaime and I would split up the rest
2: and the the title love and rockets i know you're you're a, you're a, a music fan punk fan any chance that was might that might have been inspired by the uh uh 80s alt band of the same name the offshoot of Bauhaus
0: <laughs> well they appropriated the name
2: okay <laughs>
0: <laughs> they took the name because actually uh, Com- uh watchman creator alan Moore, um had a bunch of comics around the house and he's you know he's friends with the, the the band.
3: No kidding. And they
0: were Yeah, and uh the Bauhaus had just broken up. The singer right. went uh solo so the rest of the musicians were looking for a new name for their band and he picked Love and Rockets.
1: So they got it from you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh, wow. That's great. <laughs> um and you've you've mentioned other music and science fiction influences, um anything that, that made a particularly big impression on you when you were starting to form your own style?
0: Well, uh, early on when we were um even when we were kids we we leaned more toward artists that uh were good at drawing people mm-hmm. in in the, in the sense uh in a, in a humanistic way not not just you know a figure drawing but uh uh like a lot of the kid comics uh, were more relatable that way than the superhero comics were uh, you could read a bunch of Archie comics, and after a while you notice that some of the artists were just simply better than others yep. they were just drawing in that you know that house style but there was a handful of uh of those creators that simply uh, i don 't know connected to kids you just felt like you were there, even if they were drawing in this cartoony style and that 's what we noticed uh early on is reading a lot of kids' comics that they were that they were very concerned about connecting. With 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 young people uh, and making you feel that like you were there, and that's that's pretty much where we uh, were what inspired us to to, to go our way with the, the types of stories we do. We just sort of uh, uh, built our own comics on that, on a hu- basically uh, you know on, on humanistic drawing. <laughs>
1: So um, comic book selling has changed a lot. The marketplace has changed a lot um, since you've been in the business. Is it hard still doing, uh, really doing comics in a marketplace that's now very focused on graphic novels?
0: It's, it's, it's difficult just because of the workload, because graphic novels, you know, it's, it's a lot more work at, at one time. Usually uh, most, most comics are done serialized.
3: You
0: know, mm-hmm. do in chapters and it comes out and then they collect it, but once in a while, um, some crazy artist will come out with a 500-page book, and now everybody wants a 500-page book. <laughs> and not, not too many artists are capable of doing that. You know, most artists are, are best doing uh, doing sprints, doing uh, you know short chapters and and, and 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 books, and then you know they collect it. But then somebody got this idea that you know. An untrained artist was going to do a, you know, 300-page book
3: mm-hmm. in
0: one sitting, and that that just kind of that that's that fell apart pretty quickly, I think, because you don't see a lot of uh, graphic novels straight out with very detailed art. It, uh, if you'll notice, most uh, graphic novels now the art is very simple because it's just so difficult to put out a book like that all at once. Mm-hmm. So, not um, is different. Where is where? You know, we have collections, and, you know, we do that. And Because uh, if you notice, my graphic novels are drawn a lot more simple than my Love and Rocket stories are.
1: Right, that makes sense. Um, and do you have any advice for the aspiring comics creators out there, the the artists and writers who are being inspired by you?
0: Well, if they're inspired by Love and Rockets, and then some of the other books I've done, um, you really have to be yourself and not... You see, this is really difficult because you have to decide how much are you going to do this because you love it and how much do you want a job? Because if, you, if you're doing this to be, have a job, then you, you'd you be better off drawing Spider-Man.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> but if you really like comics and you really believe you have something to say, something personal, because I believe, for me, comics are best as personal expression. So that's why I encourage in, in young people who ask me, what you know? You know, uh, give, uh, you know who need advice about making comics? I have like, you got to be yourself, and here's the hard part: you got to sit down and learn to draw, and you got to do it all day. You got to do it ev- almost every day. That's when their faces turn white. <laughs>
1: <laughs> really? Because <laughs> I, 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 I would think most of them are. I would think most of them are already kind of sitting down and drawing every day, at least doodling here and there. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, by every day, 24 hours, whatever. I just mean, if you're going to make comics, you have to put in the time. Now, I'm talking about old school. I'm talking about the way I do it. Mm -hmm. There there are a lot of young people who do their uh, their stuff on a pad, and that's a whole different thing. I wouldn't know what to say to them, other than the content of their stories should be, uh, you know, the self-expression, you know. Write about yourself first, and then... If it gets too weird about you know, you feel too weird about writing about yourself and your friends, just do that and change their names. That's all. <laughs> simple, so simple tips like that.
1: So you're still working pen and ink, same, same old, same old.
0: Yeah, just a sheet of paper, pen and ink, uh, pencil and ink, and a straight edge and eraser. That's it.
1: Did you face any barriers being a Mexican-American trying to, to break into the comics world in the 70s? And do you, do you think it would be easier now for someone of a similar background?
0: Yeah, yeah it, it's, you just simply have to have the chops, really. I mean, it's simple, uh, old-school thinking. If you can draw well and you've got a story to tell, they don't care what color you are, as long as you've got something you know, they want to look at. Really. Because luckily, you know, you know, we see we're not movie stars here. We're just you know, it's not like what we look like. You know, it's not about that. Mm-hmm. it's Just about what, what the work is. You know, how the and how the work reads. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing.
1: Well, we've been talking with Gilbert Hernandez, and you can find his book Bumperhead and Lover Boys in stores right now. Thank you so much for joining us, Gilbert.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope I said something that might help. You, you've said <laughs> was, many,
1: many inspiring was, things. Definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm
2: Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Next up, PW Select Editor Adam Boritz tells us what's happening in the world of self-publishing, so stay tuned.
1: Hi, this is Michaela DePrince, and I'm the author of Taking Flight, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark
2: Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New
1: York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Select Editor Adam Boritz is here with Dispatches from IndieLand. Hi, Adam.
4: Hello, Rose. Hey, Mark. It's very Hello. nice to have Hello. you here. Well, thank you for having
1: me. Um, so what's going on in the indie world? First of all, let's let's backtrack a little bit. You're PW Select Editor. What's PW
4: Select? Well, PW Select. I'm actually the PW Select and BookLife editor. Ah, uh, all right. But PW Select is our monthly insert in Publishers Weekly, and it's basically news, uh, reviews, announcement listings, profiles, and features all about the world of self-publishing. So, and you said
1: you're PW Select and BookLife editor. So, what's
4: BookLife? Well, BookLife is uh, Publishers Weekly's website dedicated to all things indie authors. It's uh, www.booklife.com. And um, it's also a portal through which indie authors can submit their books to review uh, to PW. So Book Life has a lot of content uh, in addition to the submission aspect. So we have how-to stories on pretty much anything an indie author might be interested in doing. There's like marketing, ebooks, print print-on-demand. And um, then we have a featured authors section, a featured books section. And uh, you can also register for PW Select, which is our marketing product for indie authors. So, yeah, tell us about what all uh, PW Select entails, and what can
2: a writer, an independent writer, uh, self-published writer, get? How
4: does it how does it help them? Well, uh, PW Select, if you purchase the marketing product, that uh, gives you an announcement listing in the uh, print magazine, and uh, we feature your book on the PW homepage, the book Life homepage. And uh, promote it on our social channels. And I think the main thing is the listing in the magazine. Because, um, you know, like for traditional books, this is, you know, an, an announcement listing about an upcoming work. And that, you know, that's read by agents, editors, etc. And uh, it's kind of a way of announcing your book to the publishing world. Yeah. And how's the response been? I
2: mean, I know we've been seeing quite a few, uh, in, you know, self-published titles through
4: BookLife. How's it been? Has it been pretty steady in both? I think so, yeah. We're definitely seeing a lot of uh, submissions for review. We've, we've seen a lot of uh, people signing up. Because when you go to BookLife, you're going to create a profile for yourself. As you know, either an author, an editor, a writer. And then you're going to add projects, which are your books. And those can be... You know, a manuscripting process, a, a book that you're about to publish, or a book that you're already marketing. So we've seen a lot of sign-ups, and a lot of people then go on to submit their book for review. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, and um, you had said something about... a. Uh, uh best of the year list. Obviously, we do one for PW as a whole, but it sounded like you had some special indie specific year's best list going on.
4: We did. We did the Book Life's Best Books of 2014, which was uh, four uh, five titles, all that received stars. Mm -hmm. And they'll actually, additionally, our December issue of PW Select will be our first ever uh, starred annual. Uh So we're going to run all the books that received stars. During the course of the year, I think we reviewed you know several hundred, almost 300 wow. books, and I think about 30, 35 got stars. Yeah,
1: hey, that's not bad at all. Yeah, that no, was, actually very good.
4: Yeah, so we're gonna that's that's the last issue of the year. In fact, that'll be in. But um, as to our best books, um, there's fiction, there's nonfiction. We can start off with a book called Capital Offenses, and this is a, an art book, which you know I'd say in terms of self-published books, you don't see all that many They're a lot more expensive to produce, obviously, mm-hmm. than, say, a memoir or a novel. It's the artwork of Stephen Barnwell. And, um, you know, it's kind of like a uh, outsider art, kind of like Think Banksy-esque. You know, so he kind of uh, reimagines banknotes, coupons, and stamps, and then, like, kind of reappropriates the sort of established aesthetic to critique it. Mm-hmm. So um, it was actually a really cool book. It got a star, um, and it had things like... One of the pieces was called... Uh, The United States of Islam, which was uh, U.S. currency, but it featured scenes from historic Islamic military victories. Um, And our reviewer, uh, in praising it, said, Barnwell's work exposes the contradictions and hypocrisy of various power structures and even underscores the intricate elegance of currency as an aesthetic experience.
1: That sounds pretty cool.
4: Yeah, that was one of our our cooler books this year, I think. Moving on, uh, we had Hair of the Corn Dog, by A.K. Turner. And uh, this is like a parenthood memoir. This is this is her third uh, installment in the Tales of Imperfection series. It mm-hmm. uh, was preceded by This Little Piggy Went to the Liquor Store. And <laughs> Mommy Had a Little Flask. Um, and we reviewed all three of those. And this is the, the first... They, they all got positive reviews. This one was starred. And they're, these are all self-published, so she's got a yeah. trilogy of all self-published books, right? Yeah, and she's been featured... You know, I think that she may have been on some bestseller lists. I think she was on the, she had an article in the, on the Huffington Post about self-publishing so she's kind of like making some waves in the, the indie world.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and I think she lives in Idaho and she has two kids and they're just kind of these like self-deprecating stories about her failures as a mother. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, highly entertaining. And our reviewer called it well-paced, entertaining, and um, that it would leave readers looking forward to the next installment, which I would think once she submits another book, we'll definitely want to review that.
1: Yeah, right? absolutely.
4: Moving on, we have a novel from an Iranian author. It's called Tehran Moonlight, and the author is Azine Samatapur. And it's basically a story about a uh, 23-year-old Iranian violinist. And she's kind of trying to kind of escape from, you know, her abusive brother, and she has a morally rigid father. Um, and then there's, a you know, kind of an illicit love interest thrown in there. Um, so that uh, that also got a star, and um, so our reviewer called it a microcosm of Iranian society and uh, praised it as uh, praised the book's robust, confident style and probing characterizations. So that's definitely one uh, to check out. Another novel that we did. This one I think is kind of cool. It's called uh, *The Strange Birth, Short Life, and Sudden Death of Justice Girl*, and the author is Julian David Stone. And it's set in the New York in the fifties during the golden age of television and the Red Scare, mm-hmm. and so it's about this uh, this TV writer, and he uh, I guess he loses his job because he won't sign some sort of loyalty oath to the country. Yeah. Um and prior to his being fired, he uh, sabotages some sketch he was working on that was parodying Superman, but in so doing, he creates uh, this which he thought was a joke, a character called Justice Girl, but she becomes very popular based on that one episode. So he's rehired. And then he kind of has to avoid being blacklisted and the actress who's portraying Justice Girl um, sort of hunting for potential communists. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, so that one, it got a star, and uh, the reviewer loved it. Uh, He hailed it as a, quote, lurid depiction of mass media's power in shaping our fantasies, values, ideals... And fears, adding that this fast-paced and emotionally vibrant satire is a treat for television buffs and general readers alike.
1: All right, well, so that sounds like a trip, and also good for yeah. for comics fans. And definitely, some interesting things happened in, in the comics world and and during the
4: fears, during the Red yeah. Scare. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And then, rounding out our our best books of 2014 is *The Great Liars* by Jerry J. Carroll, and this is a thriller. It's okay. kind of interesting premise. Uh, it's an oral historian, and she's working with a former uh, navy officer who's uh, you know, now in an old age home. And uh, as she's getting you know his oral history for this, what she thought was this ordinary project, she uncovers these secrets about uh, Pearl Harbor hmm. and. Um, You know, as with thrillers, it becomes a race against time and a battle for survival and those things. Um, Right. (laughs) But uh, but the reviewer uh, gave the book a start and called it, it was meticulously constructed, uh, delivering healthy doses of political conspiracy, paranoia, and pulse-pounding suspense. Well, it sounds like a really solid list there. Yeah, you know, and there's fiction, nonfiction... um, Different genres I think that's what we're getting for submissions for reviews in general. It's really across the board, mm-hmm. um, which is nice. You know, it, it gives us the ability to better cover the indie community in general. Yeah, sure.
1: So do you, do you feel like, I mean, there's endless advice out there for people who are self-publishing, but I feel like most of it is geared toward people writing fiction. Do you think that the, uh, the people who are doing nonfiction or like the, the art book, uh, need to go a different route when there is self-publishing? Is promotion different? Are there some self-publishing options that are better for people in nonfiction than fiction?
4: Well, I think, you know, it's definitely... There will be some differences, and I think it depends maybe you know, on, like, the subcategories within within genres. So, you know, I mean, if you're doing a memoir, uh, it's not, I don't think it's going to be all that different than uh, if you're doing a novel. I mean, obviously series... Are, are are a great, great way for self-published authors to kind of get one book out, get an audience, and keep going. And I think the marketing and promotional stuff that you're going to do for one, you would do for the other. When you get into um, you know, things like like you said, like art books or cookbooks or right. uh, comics and things like that, it, it is different. And I think you're going to you're going to want to look a little deeper than oh, you know, I'm going to self-publish with CreateSpace. You know, you're going to want to find someone that that can handle that specific type of book and, mm. and what you need for it. And in terms of marketing, I mean, I think that the marketing basics are kind of universal. Um, and that's and that's where I think most of the uh, the services and advice are coming now are for, for people marketing their books.
1: Right. I mean, I have a friend who's a photographer and probably 10 years ago he was trying to self-publish a photo book and he just could not get reproduction that satisfied him. He, he, I'm, I'm sure technology is improved since then. Are there printers out there who are working with indie authors to make really good visuals?
4: Yeah, there absolutely are. I mean, I think you're going to have to do some research as the author and figure out what is the best fit for you and for your budget. But, I mean, absolutely you can. And we've had a few... uh, art books come in. Last year we had um, a book called Jackie, My Obsession by Ron Galella, mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know who uh, he was at the time, but I guess he was this kind of, he's like the first paparazzi ever. And he was obsessed with uh, Jackie Kennedy and, you know, basically stopped her and then she took him to court twice and there were restraining orders. Yeah. But so he self-published um, and he had published several other photo books about other things traditionally. But he um, sent us this book called Jackie, My Obsession um, and it was, you know, hundreds of pages of his, like, pictures of stalking Jackie Kennedy. And, um, <laughs> but, like, you know, I mean, you wouldn't know, based on, like, the picture quality, that it wasn't, you know, a traditionally published book. It was beautiful. Um, I think, but I do think, like, for for self-published authors working with photo books, the main thing is going to be price. and. I think like someone like Ron Gallo probably has the money to spend. I don't know what he spent, but I'm sure it was a lot. So that's going to be the main challenge for It's finding something within your budget that still right looks good. Right. And the same for I think for like a cookbook. You know, you're going to want yeah. the, the illustrations and the art for that to be quality as well. Okay. Sure.
1: I actually um, just the other day downloaded my very first self-published cookbook, um, cool. and uh, it's it's a it's a vegan cookbook, a dairy-free cookbook, and um, I got the PDF with the color images, because the other option was the print version with the black and white mm-hmm. images, because they said it was just com- completely prohibitively expensive to try and print a color cookbook.
4: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Well,
1: I didn't know you were, are you vegan? I, didn't... I, 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 uh, I'm, I have a dairy allergy, uh-huh. and so I do a lot of vegan cooking. Nice. Uh, but uh, it, it, was, it was really interesting, because before that, I hadn't really paid attention to uh, self-publishing in in cookbooks. Uh, I I just I wasn't even all that aware that it happened, uh, other than you know, little independent. You know, this is this is our uh, neighborhood cookbook, or you know, this is our small town chamber of commerce cookbook, stuff like that. Uh, and it was actually it was. Really cool. It's a great cookbook. Yeah, we've gotten a
4: few in it and they've done, you know, the reviews they've gotten are, are pretty good. You actually floored one on to me a while back. A yeah. Lot. Yeah, uh, it was a cookbook from
2: uh, a, a well-known restaurateur from uh, Sonoma County, The Girl in the Fig, The Girl in the Fig, and she had been published traditionally, but I, I think, or that cookbook, uh, she had initially gone to traditional markets, but then she realized she would have more control over the design, uh, the recipes, so she did it herself. And it seems like there are more and more uh, uh, restaurants and uh, uh, resorts that are publishing their own uh, cookbooks and and you know self publishing them they have a market built in so they don't have to pay you know they just pay for whatever print they're doing and it's you know good quality stuff but um, they're making you know they can stand to make their own markups or not so I've been noticing that and
4: this is one of the ones and I remember it being a really beautiful book oh yeah no it was and and I think that you know I think we did a Q and A with her and, and yeah. she said you know that. Uh, because you know she has these restaurants, she can just sell it there, and she doesn't need to worry about you know distribution and stuff like that. Right. So you know, and I think that, you know, for for every self published genre, there, there's going to be like things that work to your advantage against your advantage. Right.
1: And um, and the, the book that I got, I just wanted to make sure I was right on the title is the Non Dairy Evolution Cookbook. Um, and among other things, it has a lot of substitutes for cheese. And uh, there's a woman named Miyoko Shinner who did uh, a vegan cheese cookbook that was everywhere i saw everyone talking about it on message boards and she had a blog and she had all these videos and she was really good at self-promotion and then somewhere way down in a comment thread i found out about this book from from like the one person who'd read it and i think it's a better cookbook so it's uh, it's interesting to see how much marketing can make a difference yeah.
4: and especially for some i mean vegan cheese is kind of a very niche thing.
1: And this, is, and this is, like, you know, ferment your own yeah, yeah. cave-aged vegan cheese. Like, it's 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 very aged. And it's, it's interesting, because, like, vegan cheese can actually be kind of good.
4: Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm i a well I'm vegan, but uh, it, Pure Food and Wine, have you guys been there in, mm-hmm. in the city? Yeah. They, have like a, they have a vegan, and it's raw food, so a raw food vegan cheese plate. And it's, my wife liked it, and she is not vegan. Fantastic. Oh, wow. so
1: um, I, I just think it's interesting to see uh, what what's what's out there and how much the the marketing push can make a difference because uh, you know there there are communities I think for every book yeah. and so it it matters a lot how much the author is tapped into those communities
4: oh absolutely yeah I mean I, and I think there are still a lot of people who don't even think about that and they just self publish and then their books on amazon and you know, no one knows it's
1: Amazon. <laughs> now what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know how the money rolls in. But yeah, I, I think that's
4: exactly right. Authors need to find their readers and they need to market and engage with those readers. And if they don't, uh, you know, I don't think they're going to be successful, which... I think it's also you know with uh, traditionally published authors becoming more of the case you know they right. you can't just let the publishing house take care of it anymore you kind of have no, to be out exactly. there and, yeah you know.
1: and the publishing house won't take care of it they'll be calling you up going okay where's where's your marketing
4: yeah
1: yeah where's your promo
4: yeah and, and I think I mean I think social media has definitely leveled the, the playing field for for indie authors um, however because so there's you know now so many self published books I think that uh, you know you have to. Maybe have a little bit more savvy than uh, I have a Facebook page, you know, right? So, you know, so you have to really kind of know how to engage and know what you're doing.
2: Are there certain books that you don't see as eBooks that you do as
4: traditional print books? Books that uh, self-published books that are that are just as eBooks?
2: You no, know, that that you don't see that you would think. Oh, I I don't see too many of these. Like uh, we see health books cookbooks, not as many. I thought there would be more.
4: Hmm. Well, no, yeah, I think, I think anything visual you're going to see less of. Right. Um, but we get we a pretty good across the board um, thing. We don't get a lot, you know, one thing that I think is interesting for book life is that we do not get uh, very many uh, self-published or indie comics, hmm. which you, I think is like, a, you know, that's a pretty big segment of the comic book world. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, today we've only gotten a couple that have been submitted, so that's a little strange, I think, yeah. and maybe a community we should reach out to more. Right, right, sure. And the, well, and the other interesting thing is that um, Book Life does review self-published audiobooks. Um, and we've, uh, we've had a few uh, entries, and self-publishing in, audio, in the audio world has kind of become this huge thing. And I think all of you self-published audio people out there should submit your books to Book Life, because there's not a lot of other... Uh, venues that will review a self-published audio, let alone a traditionally published audio.
1: I had no idea that existed yeah, at all. I, I, mean, to, I, I guess you know, it's, it's just one step up from podcasting, right? You set yourself up with a, a decent headset and a, a copy of QuickTime, and then you just go and record a book. Is it authors recording their own books?
4: It's authors recording their own books, or they can uh, hire people. The, uh, the main provider, and there's a few, is is of course Amazon the audiobook sure. creation exchange right. ACX. Ah, right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can you know record your own book, or I, th- I think through ACX you can hire or find and hire narrators. Uh, yeah, and, and a lot of narrators themselves are now uh, picking projects that they you know might not have been able to do through a publisher. They they can secure the rights themselves, right? Um, and, and release stuff like that. We're actually going to be doing a, a feature on there's this uh he's like an award-winning narrator robert Fass, and he got the rights to a book that he wanted you know like a favorite book of his and uh self-published the audiobook and then he he got i think uh i want to say Hachette to distribute it for him hmm. so yeah i mean, he's going to submit that for review but in, you know for for self-published audiobooks send them to us Perfect. Oh, that
1: sounds great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Adam. It's always great to have you on the show. I always learn something exciting every time. All oh, right. Well, it's great to be here. And now a final word from our sponsors.
0: Hi, I'm Myra Kalman, author and illustrator of My Favorite Things, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
2: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Join us next week for an interview with the amazing Gay Talese, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
2: In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free.